Radio Influence. The future is now. Welcome into another edition of Rush the Field, the college football podcast for you college football fans. I'm Scott Seidenberg, alongside veteran coach, scout, and a consultant, Chris Landry from LandryFootball.com, who is at the NFL Combine this week. Chris, it's a busy week for you. It's a busy week for LandryFootball.com, and it's a busy week for these players. It is. It's certainly uh, like a job interview. This is going to be Combine 37 for me. Um, We've been to everyone and um, it is an important time because it is a job interview. It's been televised. Gosh, I don't know when they start televising. I don't know. It's five, six, seven years now, eight years, whatever it's been. So it's getting a lot of um, a lot of publicity. I think everybody knows what it is. When when I was running and people didn't know what the combine was, they thought it was farm equipment. Um, It it, uh, you know, so it's it's. It's the biggest job interview that they're going to have, and a lot of things get done there, and I know we'll get into a little bit of it, but it is really important time as young men have been preparing for the combine, for the interviews, and obviously the workouts that are going to take their next step and their uh, their career, or at least their job opportunity to work for a few years at least in pro football. Now, what are scouts and general managers looking for in the combine that they – either want confirmation on what they've seen throughout the player's college career, or they're looking for something that they didn't see during the player's tenure in college. Well, the combine was started years ago for one reason, and that's the medical physicals. We, we started that because players were crisscross on the country going to, at that time we had 28 teams and was, this is ridiculous. Guys are going to 10, 15, 20, uh, NFL cities to do medical physicals. We need to be more efficient with the players' times and save money by bringing players to one central location. We looked at a few different options at that time. We had it. We had uh, a couple of combines one year. One year we had it in um, in Phoenix. It was outdoors. And I don't care how nice the weather is, how warm it is. You never know. If it's outdoors, anything can happen. Well, wouldn't you know, we had a big windstorm. And that was the day that uh, that Jerry Rice, among others, ran like 464. Mm-hmm. You know, and, 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 you know, again, when you hear about times, well, times and workout numbers, they don't matter unless you put – the circumstances of which, you know, the what conditions, outdoors, indoors, was it, um, you know, pristine conditions or was it was inadequate conditions? All those things factor could change the difference between a four, four time and a four, seven time in a snap of a finger. So uh, that didn't work out very well. We went to Tampa one year, had a similar issue with the, with the lack of an indoor facility at that time. We went to New Orleans twice in that worked out okay, except it coincided with Mardi Gras, and we didn't have enough hotel rooms for all the people that were coming in, so that wasn't an issue. And then we decided in 1987 to go to Indianapolis to uh, a couple of reasons. One, they had great locale with the convention center that was tied to the then RCA Dome, now Lucas Oil Field. And so everything was in the location. And at the time, now we have all the MRIs 
in the um, in the convention center. But it used to be that we had to shuttle them to the Methodist Hospital, which is only a block away, and that that was very convenient, and we got everything done in a timely manner. Plus, Indianapolis had a really good record of. Uh, airport that could get players in and out, meaning it, they had a low percentage of fog-ins and freeze-ins and snow-ins. And Indianapolis kind of middle part of the country. So you're from California or Miami or Boston. You're not going all the way across the country. Everybody's kind of going towards the middle of the country. So that's why we settled, and, and, it, and it was really for the medical physicals. Now, what has changed is that we've added a lot of psychological testing which is the second most important thing behind the medical physicals. Then the interviews with the coaches are the next most important. And the least important thing that we do are the workouts. And to answer your question, what are we looking for in the workouts? Uh, Very simply, we want to see confirmation. Are they athletically what they appear to be on film? And if they are not, then we got to figure out why. And I call it the 90% rule because 90% of the time a player's film matches his workout. It's the 10% of the time where it doesn't that you got to do more work and figure out what the issue is. So um, I put more attention into the three cone drill, for example, than the 40 yard time with the exception of receivers and defensive backs. Um, I think that there's a lot of things we look at to really determine a guy's athletic traits and metrics are important as long as you meet the baseline metrics for playing that position in the league that that's what's really important um so we look for that and try to confirm what we see on tape it doesn't tell you how good a football player uh, the player is that's what the film and that's what in-person scouting is all all for does it hurt the player that doesn't participate in certain drills we always hear about quarterbacks not throwing at the combine and we and we know that they're going to participate in their pro days but what separates the combine from the individual pro days that are held on these campuses? Well, as I tell everybody that's wondering whether they're going to work out is this is the only place where every head coach, every assistant coach, every scout, every person. Because it's director, become an NFL convention of be sorts. There. Yeah, it's become an NFL every, convention. Everybody's there. Everybody's there. You're not going to get that at your pro day. Because, you know, you might be at Michigan and on that same day, it might be Alabama's pro day. And so everybody's going to be split and you're not going to get the exposure that you're going to get by working out at the combine. Uh, I like to see guys compete and work out. Uh, let me tell you the little secret, the little the little thing that no one will tell you that this is how they try to get a little cute and the agents do this with them. And more importantly, the guys that train these players will do this. So a player will go to the combine, right? He will get as heavy as he can get. So he'll, he'll put on weight. He'll drink a lot of water. He'll do everything to get his weight to maybe 208 pounds instead of 200, but he won't run. Then he'll lose all the weight (laughs) and he'll run. Well, you're not fooling anybody, but a lot of people in the media get fooled. Oh, so-and-so ran. The time doesn't matter unless you have the weight on the same day. So, of course, you're going to be faster at 200 pounds than 208. The same guy running with less weight is going to be, you know, now there's some exceptions to that, of course, as – uh, muscle mass is, is is more dense. So as you get stronger, you can become faster as you put on more weight. But th- this type of weight where you lose 
and gain real quickly. You're not fooling anybody, but that's what they try to do. That's why a lot of them, they'll come in and, of course, they're going to get measured and weighed, and they're, you know, but they're not going to work out. And then they'll work out at their pro day. We tell guys, look, we're not concerned. If you're a quarterback, I, don't, could, I could, couldn't care less about the throwing drills. It doesn't matter. That's more for the receivers than anything. You don't know the receivers. The timing's not going to be there. But I want to see a guy compete, and I want to see how he adjusts to the moment where there's some adversity. That's what I want to see. I know it's not going to be as good, but I'm going to I'm going to give a guy more credit for doing that than if he does his pro day where it's scripted, where he's working with his own receivers, mm-hmm. and it's scripted by some quarterback coach. Well, that that to me. I won't even stay and watch that. That is a that's not use, useful. So, um, the pro days are basically becoming. I mean, a lot of people go to them mainly because you for coaches that go to those because they get to watch film all day and get to meet with some of the coaches and meet with the players. Maybe take a couple of key guys out to dinner the night before. But the workout in and of itself is virtually useless on the pro day. Let's get into some college football news before we talk about our state of the program school this week, which is Texas, and of course a rich history with the Texas Longhorns. But you mentioned the comfort of doing things at home and you know in that environment like these players do at their pro days and things like that. Well, there was a story that came out, Chris, about Georgia Tech announcing that they're going to move one game for the next couple of years to Mercedes-Benz Stadium. So we're talking about taking one home game off campus and moving it to what's essentially a neutral site game, even though it really is, what, a a mile away from campus? It might as well be a home game for them. And I know they've played games in the Georgia Dome tons of Mm -hmm. time. But what does it do for the program taking a home game off campus and moving it to a facility like the Mercedes-Benz Stadium? Well, it depends on the program. In this case with Georgia Tech, they do an okay job of – supporting the program um, at their stadium. But it's not, you know, I wouldn't advise Georgia or Alabama or LSU or, you know, people that will put 100,000 people in the stadium to do that. It's it's not, doesn't make fiscal sense. But yeah, for, but doesn't, doesn't it, it essentially turn a home game for a program like Georgia Tech into a road game? Because, and, and the reason why I say that is because when you play at a destination like that. And I know, like I said, it's very close to campus. It's a mile away from campus. So mm-hmm. we're talking about, you know, we're talking about one stadium versus another that's only a mile away from each other. But, but, but just when, split when, the tickets. Exactly. When you hear Mercedes-Benz Stadium, now those opposing fans might be more inclined to travel there to make a weekend out of it because that stadium, it just hosted the Super Bowl, it's a destination as opposed to let's just go to Atlanta on the campus of Georgia Tech. Well, yes, but again, that's why I said it, it, it. we're used in this situation, but it does differ depending upon the school. In Georgia Tech's case, they're going to make more money because they're going to get more tickets and they're going to they're going to split the revenue. And let's just call it like it is. We can say it's a 50-50 revenue split. Um, I, 
75% of the fans are going to be Georgia fans. Their fan base is bigger. Their alumni base is bigger. And those Georgia fans are going to get their hands on the ticket. Um, you know, or, or, you know, whoever they would, uh, that, that's the game. It's Georgia, Georgia Tech, correct? No, it's, I think it's just one, it's one game each year. For the one next five one years. game each year. Yes. Okay, all and right. So, there, so could, one of the games could, is actually against Clemson. Okay, well, let's take that. It's going to be one game a year. So in the Clemson case, well, yeah, they're they're essentially taking a home game and in, in, in selling out for more money because they're going to make more money by splitting the gate in a stadium that holds more people that is going to be uh, more people that are going to be uh, opponents fans. So it's essentially going to be a – neutral site that's going to probably be a pro Clemson game yes or depending on the other whoever the other the team is it's it, it's and I'm assuming it's going to be a Georgia or a Clemson or a game like that because you know with all due respect Georgia Tech Wake Forest is not going to draw that uh, at um, it, it, it the Mercedes-Benz but the big time game there's no question about it um it's it is a simply a financial situation. It is certainly not a competitive edge at all. I mean, you're giving up a competitive edge of playing at mm-hmm. home, but it is something that you try to weigh. And this is the, the reality of, hey, when you're trying to make money, Georgia Tech doesn't make as much money. Now, they have money with their alumni and whatnot, but in terms of their athletic department budget, um, they get a nice check from being in the ACC, but – it, it gives them more money, and for that, they're trading up a home field. So it is a coach. To me, I don't like it. This is obviously an administrative decision that doesn't help out Georgia Tech because yeah. it is not going to put, you know, more of their fans. No, no. In that, in that state, it's going to put more of the other team's fans. Yes. Again, assuming it's a Georgia, a Clemson type, if they, again, go with a – team other than that they're just going to have a lot of empty seats but that's what it's done it, it it's certainly going to provide more money and help them with other sports which georgia tech is a program that's not a it's not georgia it's not clemson in terms of money so as a coach i don't like it um and i, I would be honest with you as i'm not as big a fan you know when and, and i know this year i think alabama plays duke so that's not a real big game but let's just take Alabama, Florida State, Alabama, Michigan, Alabama, USC. Those are some games that they've played recently, and they've been known for playing, kind of opening up the season. I used to think, and I get it, that Atlanta and Dallas are nice places. Let's call it what it is. Those are money games. Yes. I, and and by the way, money meaning, hey, they partner with TV and this is what we're going to do. I would prefer, and I think TV would be on board with this. I would prefer to see, because they play those one-time games. I would prefer to see Alabama play Michigan or USC or Florida State in a home-and-home and and maybe open up the season one year in Alabama and one year in the Coliseum Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. in the big house. But again, a lot of these programs – like Alabama, and they're going to do it starting in a few years, I think 2025. Um, but but in most cases, they don't do that because they don't want to do home and home because most don't want to give up their home game. If you can sell out 100,000 seats, you'd rather play, you know, nobody, you know, just children, sisters of the poor, and because you're going to make a lot of money with your season ticket package, and they don't want to give up the money. But 
I think just from an excitement standpoint, I would rather see two good teams play in a home environment and then the next year play in the other team's home. I, I think that would – that's I just think college football is more exciting in a college atmosphere yes. than it is in a stadium, although we see that in bowl games. But that's mm-hmm. why we see it because it is a one-time shot. You play a game – and it's a neutral site, and most of the time when it's been like Alabama, they play those games in Atlanta. Well, that's kind of a home, you know, unless Pretty they're much. playing Clemson. Mm-hmm. You know, if they're playing Michigan, if they're playing, you know, Florida State, not so much. But if they're playing, uh, you know, uh, guys, who else did they play? That uh, West Virginia, Virginia Tech, that's a big, big advantage. I mean, there's 70% Alabama fans because they travel more. Yeah, and but it works, the other, them, it, yeah. it works the other way, too, because remember we talked about it this year when Notre Dame played against Northwestern. That game was on campus. That was at Ryan Correct. Field. And a lot of people were saying, well, this game should be at Soldier Field. Like, why isn't it Soldier Field? It's Notre Dame. It's Northwestern. You're going to sell out Soldier Field if you put the game in Chicago. And and, and the response is, well, then you're going to get it 80% Notre Dame fans or 70, 75% Notre Dame fans. You want the home field advantage if you're Northwestern. That's why you have that game on campus. Yeah, well, and again, if you're, if you're going to do a home and home, well, then you're going to play it at obviously your respective stadium. Yes. If you're going to play a one game situation in a situation like that, you're more inclined to do it at a neutral field. But again, it is a, all right, if you're going to play one game, you know, you're going to play one game and most big time programs are going to want a home and home. They're not going to want to play somewhere. That's why we talked about it last week with central Florida. If you're a program like that, you got to go on the road and, and play But if you're a, you know, programs that are that have that are in the Big Ten and the the Pac-12, the SEC, the ACC, the Big 12, whatnot. If you're going to play another one of those teams, you're going to want to play a home and home. So that's two games. But if it's one game, that's where you tend to work out these these neutral site Mm -hmm. situations, which, again, they're kind of they're sponsored. It's the. The Chick Fil A kickoff Chick-fil-A at kickoff yeah. Classic <laughs> with extra money coming yes. in, and yes. it's 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 all tied to money. So if they can get some extra money, they kind of weigh the fact that all right, we'll play it here or there. In in the case of Northwestern, there's no question that's a better home field for Northwestern. They'll have some Notre Dame fans in there, but only if their their fan base gives up their tickets, and it's a it's a competitive advantage to play your game at home. If you're looking strictly for money, then you do sell out the game. It depends on your program, what your financial needs are. This clearly states that Georgia Tech is saying we need a little bit more money and we're going to sell out some home games. We've seen it before. I've seen other programs. I've seen some programs do it. Um, I've seen a program like Ole Miss and Mississippi State do it. I see. I've seen. I saw Mississippi State sell a home game against Alabama one year. They did it in Orlando. I, I scouted the game, actually. You know, it, it doesn't happen as much anymore because the big checks that they get from the SEC network and the Big Ten network in particular, and the ACC network is starting in August, their check's pretty big. It, you know, a lot of them are doing better financially where they say, hey, look, l- let's try to win more games and create more stature for our program that way. But the, the, the ugly story behind a lot of college football is the fact that 
they don't make as much money as you think because they've got to support so many sports that don't on campus that don't make money. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them, a lot of them do sell out their home game to make more money somewhere else. And I've seen it to where uh, they've literally, it's just hadn't been for about 20 years now where a team literally sold its home game to go to the road team just for money. Because in essence, what you're going to make at your stadium is not that much. If you're in a 40,000 seat stadium and you can go play in a hundred thousand seat stadium and get your, your piece of the pie for a hundred thousand, uh, it may be more money getting that piece of the pie than it is getting, you know, the lion's share of the money on 40,000. So, uh, the, there, these are definitely business decisions that, uh, that drive a lot of this. Yep. And, uh, let's look at next year's, uh, well, this year's, upcoming season kickoff games. You mentioned Alabama Duke. That's at Mercedes-Benz in Atlanta. That'll be that Chick-fil-A game, or I think. Uh, mm-hmm. Auburn and Oregon will play at um, Jerry World at AT&T Stadium. Florida and Miami are going to play in Orlando. That should be a fun game. Two Florida teams playing in Orlando. It should be a, should be a, a, a good game there. Now, I want to talk about Oregon here before we get into Texas and our state of the program because they actually made a hire. They got a new defensive coordinator to replace mm-hmm. uh, someone that left, and it's a pretty interesting name, Chris. Yeah, Andy Avalos of Boise State's done a really good job over their physical defense. A little bit surprised, thought they were going to promote from within. I even said that last week. That's what I had heard. But they wanted to add Andy. I don't. I think they might have gone ahead and promoted, but they liked him. And he's a young coach. This is going to be his first Power Five job. Um, uh, outside of when he was at Colorado in the the, uh, the early to mid two thousands, when he was a GA, then so uh, it's a big step for him. But it's a veteran staff, and obviously, um, it's it's I think a nice hire, a good young hire, good recruiter as well for Mario Cristobal. As uh, as they move on without Jim Levitt, um, who we discussed last week, that kind of uh, uh, they had to. Things they were not playing nice uh, in Eugene between head coach <laughs> and defensive coordinator <laughs> last year. It led to some problems, and ultimately the departure of uh, of Jim Levitt with a pretty nice uh, payday. Yeah, I'll <laughs> take that any day of the week. All right, Chris, let's get into our state <laughs> of the program. What's going on at your favorite school? This is state of the program on Rush the Field. <laughs> And this week, we take a look at the burnt orange and white of the Texas Longhorns, UT Austin, Hook'em Horns. Okay, Hook'em, as Tom Herman would say, Chris, coming off a phenomenal season this year. We thought that it would take maybe a year or two for Tom Herman to bring this program back to where Longhorn fans felt that it should be. And this season, they might have been ahead of schedule, but a really good season, and the future does look incredibly bright for this Texas Longhorns team. You know, it does. Um, he's recruiting well. I had some uh, some news in my notebook uh, this week, the college football notebook uh, on LandryFootball.com. He's really doing a good job recruiting, and the, the secondary, he's losing a lot of guys but he's got one of the better safeties in the country coming back. And I'm not so sure even losing three members of the secondary that they may not even be better this coming year. This is a pretty good defense. It's the defense that impresses me the most 
of the big time programs in the Big 12. Um, and as they kind of continue to develop their offense under Tom, this it's going to be interesting to see if they can continue to close the gap on on Oklahoma. One of the great traditions, uh, tradition rich programs of college football from Bevo to <laughs> Big Bertha to the Eyes of Texas to the Hook'em Horns to the Texas fight. And, you know, um, it, it's certainly one of the great traditions. And if you go back in its history, I find it interesting because their first coach uh, was a guy by the name of R.D. Wentworth, who got the job in 1893 for $320 plus expenses. We, we must add that he gave him expense money, too. Oh, I nice. can't imagine with a $325 salary what the expense money was. But, you know, hey, probably $2.50 probably went a long way. Man. But a kid is the program really between him then Clyde Littlefield in, in the 20s, in the, in the early 30s, didn't do a whole lot. I mean, it, it, it played in some, some good games, played some good teams, played a lot in the Dallas area. Then Jack Sevenge came in in 34, 36. He was an ex-Notre Dame player. He was hired in, in 34, and, and he had a big-time victory over Notre Dame in uh, in 34 but he never really got it back on track the guy that's that put the foundation the texas program was dana x bible hired in 1937 he, he started the true legacy of college football they they hired him as athletic director it was the middle of the great depression they named him athletic director and head coach he had great success at nebraska and then at a&m so it was all moved. They started to put some money in, and they really started to build some momentum. In the 40 season, they were ranked and started to be really good. The 41 team was really good as well. They had the number one ranking for a while, started to put some big-time players in the program. The great Bobby Lane played in the 40s. He's probably still the best quarterback that Texas has ever had. James Street, Vince Young would be the others, but Bobby Lane was just phenomenal. In fact, if you, if you look at the gap between Bobby Lane and James Street, and James Street to Vince Young, it's one of the more anomalies that you just can't figure out. Texas football with quarterbacks, it just could never find one, but Bobby Lane was one of the all-time, all-timers in college in the NFL, and they then obviously Bible retired in 46, but as a head coach, stayed on at athletic director. He hired uh, Blair Cherry uh, as his replacement there. It didn't go so well. It ended the the uh, the Bobby Lane tenure. But I remember hearing about a great game in the 40s, like in 1946, where Bobby Lane, a senior quarterback, Texas, outdueled Oregon sophomore quarterback, Norm Van Brocklin in a big 38 to 13 win. Um, Texas had a really good year, uh, finished with the 48 Sugar Bowl win against Alabama. And then, you know, he, he, they ended up making a move with him. He didn't, he resigned after the, the 1950 season. Ed Price came in 51 to 56 and didn't quite work well. So you started to see that low. Well, Dana Bible hit the jackpot. He hired a native Oklahoma, he hired an Oklahoma Sooner, Daryl K. Royal, who had coached at Mississippi State. We talked a little bit about him, coached at Washington for one year. Yep. We talked about him when we talked about the Washington program, if you remember that. He comes in, and 
boy, does he do a good job. He immediately turned things around. They went from one and nine to six, four and one the first year, um, opened up this 59 season with a win over Nebraska to beat it. Number two, Oklahoma, 15, 14. Um, and he started to put some great teams together. Tommy Nobus, a great linebacker, uh, NFL college football hall of famer, uh, quarterback Duke Carlisle was a really good player at the time um had really really good uh, good seasons there the 64 season was great um they went on beat joe namath the number one alabama in the orange bowl um and in 68 daryl royal became the first guy to install the wishbone formation yes uh it was really you know you had steve worster and james street and didn't Billy have Dale. Multiple, multiple thousand yard rushers when they did that yeah. Absolutely. Had uh, had multiple guys that did a great job. Chris Gilbert, Cotton Spayer, um, and uh, Emery Ballard was was big in, on his staff in doing that. So he really was, was innovative as a head coach. The 69 season was unbelievable. They played, well, what was the game of the century? Uh, it was in the first 100 years of college football. That was the game of the century. Number one, Texas against number two, Arkansas. It was a game in which President Richard Nixon attended and if you remember, much to the chagrin of Joe Paterno, after that game, Richard Nixon declared Texas the college football champions. <laughs> it's just funny how things were, were gone now. And you imagine today if something like that were to happen. But it uh, they defeated um, uh, the, uh, the uh, Notre Dame in the Cotton Bowl Classic in 70. Re- one good season after another. Uh, really, really good um, coach at Daryl Roy, great coach that they had. They were in the hunt for national titles in most years, 1972. Um, th- I remember that as clear as day. He thought that team was pretty average. Um, they only lost to Oklahoma. They got better and better and better. Um, they, uh, they really did a good job. A guy that I coached with, Alan Lowry, was the quarterback in the 73 team. And uh, Darrell Rowe was just outstanding. Over 20 years, he had never had a losing season. He led Texas to three national championships, 11 Southwinds Conference titles, 16 bowl games, nine top five uh, finishes. Um, he retires after uh, 1976. He stayed on at the, as athletic director until um, retiring in 1980 and was really close to the program after that. He hired Fred Akers. Now, they thought Mike Campbell was going to get the job, a longtime assistant, but there was some people in the university that did an end around on him, and they picked a young former assistant of Royals um, uh, in Fred Akers who had done a nice job at Wyoming. Akers comes in, he abandons the wishbone offense, and he's going to run the I formation, and he recruits a guy from Tyler, Texas, by the name of Earl Campbell. That and that out. 77 team was unbelievable, Scott, the 11-0 season. And if not they, not for the loss of Notre Dame in the Cotton Bowl, they probably win the national title again. So Roy, I mean, uh, Fred Akers did a really good job tough to replace a legend he did about as good as you can do the 81 team was really good as well voted in some polls as the national champion um in 83 he was in a hut for a national champion that uh, uh, you know 11 and 0 season ranked number two behind nebraska the entire year uh, some really good teams in 84 hit a really good team in 86 was his first losing season and he had a lot of injuries that year um but he recruited some good players um 
Eric Metcalf was in that group in particular. But things started to slip a little bit, and as the pressure started to yield uh, in the late 80s, 1987, they made a move. They hired um, Texas Tech coach David McWilliams. That did not work out well at all. Didn't last very long, 87 to 91. Brought in John Makovic, who was from Illinois, the bright young coach, uh, stuck out like a sore thumb. While the Texas guys like to kick back and open up a cool one and put their boots up on the coffee table, John Makovic liked his little wine, and he had coached to the <laughs> Kansas City Chiefs, and a little bit different. He did recruit a young player out of San Diego named Ricky Williams. And he did upset Nebraska in a big then Big 12 championship game, but didn't have the type of success and eventually got run out of town. And, of course, uh, in the buyout, he maintained uh, as an ambassador role with Texas, as they call the uh, the highest paid uh, wine tester <laughs> there ever was. He was making over 300 grand a year just to basically do virtually nothing. Then Mac Brown gets hired in in 1998, coming over from North Carolina, great recruiter, uh, had a close relationship through his uncle that knew uh, Daryl Royal. And Daryl Royal was always close to the program, and Mac became very good friends with him. Mac could sell a snow cone to an Eskimo. I mean, he is a salesman. <laughs> he developed a close friendship. Mac did with a guy by the name of Joe Jamil. Uh, if you know, it's Memorial Stadium. It's Dow K. Royal yes. Memorial Stadium now at Joe Jamil Field. Joe Jamil was a big time lawyer, a wealthy, wealthy emphasis on the field is named after you wealthy. That was Mac's only quote unquote agent, his representative, the biggest booster at Texas. Well, one of them anyway. Mm -hmm. um, Red McCombs, another one, several other guys. But um, certainly Mac did a good job to build in the program recruiting. Of course, he had the benefit of Ricky winning the Heisman. They started to build that program and they had they were upset. Um, a few times by Bob Stoops at Oklahoma and criticized a lot. Then he was able to get Vince Young, and we know what happened there. They built that program, and they built uh, a team that was really good, very talented, and behind Vince Young uh, won some big games, went to the Rose Bowl and beat a good Michigan team. Then, of course, we all know the championship game, the 2005 Texas team. My top five, uh, one of the top five games I've ever seen. One no, of the top five no college doubt. football games ever No seen. question. I, I would say that that uh, would probably make my top five. Yeah. And, as you know, as a little older and, you know, but I I, uh, um, I would agree with you. Uh, and, and certainly from that time on, and if you remember, you will remember this, um, that that USC team was not just considered the best team that year. It was like, how good is this USC team oh, in we relation to the best teams in history? Chris, we were talking about that USA, USC team and comparing them to the Miami teams, right. you know, that, that had the back-to-back -back runs. And, and, you know, you have two Heisman Trophy winners on the field at one time. And this was this was Pete Carroll's dynasty. And, and everyone Absolutely. thought, you know, it was the comparison to the Miami teams, you know, that, that put, what, 20-something first-round picks into the NFL. Yeah. 
And it was between those two as the greatest teams in the past 20 years. And that game, I, I mean, I still remember where I was watching Vince Young run into the end zone and then into the corner there at the Rose Bowl. And it's just, I, I remember watching it and thinking that was, that might've been the greatest game I've ever seen. No, it really was. And it had everything because it had a great finish. It had drama. It had a little controversy. You know, you didn't have Reggie Bush in the game and, yep. you know, and then Linda yep. White. And then, you know, but you had the big upset because we tend to forget, you know, so maybe, you know, those of us at the time realized, as you mentioned, how big of a favorite USC was. It was a huge upset. And for a guy that that was maybe criticized because his teams were upset in the past, uh, he pulled the big upset. So it was a great job. Then, then of course, he gets back to the national championship game. Um, a few years later, plays uh, Alabama. Colt McCoy goes out of the game, and as we all know, yeah. that's the rest of the story. Alabama wins, and the Rose Bowl, and uh, you know Alabama begins the Saban dynasty. And quite frankly, it wasn't the reason why, but if you look at it, Texas has never been the same since. They got worse and worse. They never recovered from it. And I don't think it was because of it, but it just – that was the last time. They never really competed in a national level. Um, You know, they never threatened to be in a BCS at that time, a BCS game. They just weren't that good. Do you remember – lost a lot of – Do you remember the quarterback that replaced Colt McCoy in that game? uh, It was the – it's the the kid – He's playing. He's playing in the alliance yes, right yes. now. Yeah, no, he is. I, I'm, I forget. If I can see him right <laughs> now. Garrett Help Gilbert. Garrett Gilbert. Garrett, right. he, threw Garrett four, Gilbert he threw four interceptions in that game coming in that, for uh, well, Colt and, McCoy. and it was a freshman, and yep. he wasn't ready for that moment. Colt goes out, and you go up against a great defense. That's right. Garrett Gilbert was the guy. I, 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 um, I remember it now. Um, you know, if you look at that, that began to begin a cycle of where the, the pressure began to mount on Mac. He had dramatic changes on his staffs uh, as a result. He made drastic changes and he lost kind of the roots of the recruiting in Texas, meaning he began to re- recruit guys with a lot of stars by their names, but they didn't do a good job of evaluating. And they got a lot of entitled guys. The program I thought going in there year in and year out was a little soft, a little entitled and they just became of average looking program. Well, I and also think that the programs around them uh, started to rise up as well. You, you know, you whether it was you know Texas Tech or Houston, Houston started to become a big program. You know, TCU was doing their thing, and there were just more options. I think for high school football players in Texas, rather than dreaming of going and playing for the Texas Longhorns, because all these other schools started Texas A and M. All these other schools started to do well on the national landscape. Well, but, you know, still their recruiting got very high acclaim, but the development of players were just not very good. They didn't recruit guys that had a lot of heart. And quite frankly, they didn't coach very well there. And the thing that jumped out at me is I thought their program was a little soft. And there's no doubt that TCU played with an edge. Um and, you know, certainly you saw Nebraska and AM leave and go into a different conference, but that was not the case. You know, Mac played AM most of those years, and that Texas program was better than AM, and things have kind of changed there. And I thought the program just kind of lost its way a little bit, quite frankly. And of course, we know how that ended. Um, stepping aside, 
Charlie Strong coming in. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was kind of brought in to kind of toughen up the program and did certain things. Didn't last long. I mean, he came in 2014, out in 2016, and is where we are. They went out and hired the bright young guy, the prettiest girl on the block, and Tom Herman from Houston, who was a graduate assistant at Texas, knows the Texas landscape, knows the expectations, you know, a, me- a member of Mensa, bright guy, um, kind of understands how things go there. Texas is maybe the most unique job. They have more sugar daddies than any other program in college football. <laughs> They've got more resources to write checks than anybody. And talked about Joe Jamil, who's since passed away. Uh, but they've had a lot of other guys that have, uh, you know, Red McCombs was another guy. They've probably got 20 guys that if they need money and needed, you know, two to five million dollar checks written, that's done like in a phone call. Um, no one had deeper pockets and as deeper pockets than Texas. Uh, they always kind of consider themselves uh, kind of on a pedestal. Um, and they're kind of, you know, in the city of Austin, they kind of consider themselves the upper crust where they looked at A&M as kind of the old, you know, uh, you know, place in the middle of nowhere, you know, uh, Kyle school type thing. Texas inside the 40 acres, they kind of looked at themselves as better than everybody else. And they resource wise had it. But with that, you have to slap a lot of hands. You have to grease a lot of palms. And I think that uh, certainly getting a guy that can fit that mold is why when the rumors about Nick Saban going there, I knew that was not going to ever materialize to anything because you know, being able to having to do things that, you know, the, the Texas way is kind of part of what you get there with the money and the resources that they're willing to throw on top of you. Uh, there's a lot that's expected. There's a lot of glad handing, a lot of, hey, uh, I got a favor to ask of you, coach type thing. So Tom has really done a good job in recruiting. Uh, it is going to be fun to watch Tom Herman and Jimbo Fisher go at it. Oh, yeah. They're not in the same league, but boy, they're fighting against a lot of players. And AM has got something to sell the SEC that Texas doesn't. Texas is the Big 12. They're the the poster child, the beacon of the Big 12. Yes, Oklahoma is right there. I wouldn't call them the stepchild, but they're the second son. Texas is the is the oldest son and the most prominent one, the prominent star in the Big 12. And recruiting is going to be real interesting. I do like where Texas is, is going, where they're headed. I want to see more consistency um, in the start of the season. The two losses to Maryland – at the beginning of the year were perplexing, particularly last year's. Um, just seemed no excuse for it. They have gotten better as the year's gone along, and they are recruiting at a top five level. I mean, they may be behind AM in terms of this year's recruiting class, but I don't know about that. I think they're very, very close, and you could make a case that both programs clearly had top five classes. So it should be a lot of fun, and I think while they're recruiting – uh, in large part against AM, their big opponent is Oklahoma uh, in that conference. And that's the key. Can they catch Oklahoma, who has been a playoff team past couple of years? Can Texas get there? How close are they? That's what we're all wanting to find out and uh, see develop.
Well, that is the story of the Texas Longhorns, and we will all be watching to see what they will be able to do here in 2019. We continue our state of the program on next week's episode of Rush the Field, where we get into the Georgia Bulldogs, UGA, the number ninth, number eighth eighth ranked team uh, between the the hedges between the hedges exactly the eighth ranked team in the final AP top 25 now Chris I know it's going to be an extremely busy week for you and especially on LandryFootball.com being at the NFL Combine what's going to be a little taste of what can we expect when we log on this week well, we've got our notebooks full with all sorts of information uh, on the combine, and we'll keep everybody up to date on the workouts and what's going on. So a lot of what goes on at the combine, particularly for you pro football fans, is a lot of free agent talk. So we've been talking about it. We've got it up now. We've started our basically our free agent preview where we take every position. We grade every player in the NFL by position, and we've got those up. Um, we're, we're in the process. We'll get them all up by weekends in um, where every player in the league is graded. So if a player becomes a free agent, meaning if he doesn't sign with his current team or he gets released, you know how the player is graded. And that is a big part of what's going on at the combine. A lot of free agent discussions, the agents had their convention uh, as well as obviously a lot of meetings that are going on with personnel executives. So uh, it is a very hectic, very busy time. A lot of work gets done face to face with discussions about contracts for your players and your team. And you get to have some conversations about guys that might be available here in a couple of weeks at the start of the league year. Obviously, all the combine work and um, all the draft boards, we're going to put that up. But you know, if you're a strictly a college fan, we are in our college notebooks every day, breaking down everything from recruiting news of the class of 2020. Some transfer news, we're keeping that up to date as well. Uh, the coaching movement's slowing down a little bit, but we have a couple of those. We talked about one tonight. We have those details. And now here's what's starting is spring practices. So we're taking you inside to what's going on. Guys are coming off of injuries. Who's looking good in spring practice? Who might be an incoming young player that's going to have an early impact? How do we know that? A lot of these guys are early enrollees. So yep. a lot of these guys are this current class are already in school and participating in spring practice. So a lot of information going on at LandryFootball.com. We've got our scouting season special that you can get all of this. College football, the NFL, the draft, free agency, spring practice, coaching news, recruiting, you name it. One-stop shopping football, LandryFootball.com. And, of course, you can get the War Room newsletter as well. Just go to the website. That's free, the War Room newsletter. Click on War Room. Send us your email. You'll get that in. We send that out every Friday. And follow me on Twitter at LandryFootball. Yep. And don't forget the special scouting season discount. It's less than a magazine subscription. Full access to LandryFootball.com. Don't forget new episodes of the Landry Football Podcast every Tuesday and Thursday. New episodes of this podcast, Rush the Field, every Wednesday to keep you on top of all of your football names. And like Chris said, follow him on Twitter at LandryFootball for the latest breaking news. You follow me on Twitter at ScottsOnAir. Rush the Field with me, Scott Seidenberg, and Chris Landry can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com. Enjoy Indy, Chris. Hey, I will. Thanks a bunch, and talk to you next week. This is an Ian Beckles flavor in your ear quick fix on Radio Influence. 
this Jesse Smollett stuff, I don't know if it's not, doesn't have perfect timing or the worst timing. It's one of the two. We don't sit and really try to consider what the real problem is. The real problem is we all hate each other. That's the problem. I try not to hate. I try. But I hate some of y'all. I'm going to lie to you. I try not to hate. But this Jesse Smollett stuff came out, and he's going to be the clown of the century. Not the week, not the year, the century. Okay? And when it's all said and done, our country is so caught up in being right and wrong and not really getting to the root of our problem. We all hate each other. We all hate each other. And people are really, you know... That's fueling them. That sh- hate should not fuel you. You can find Ian Beckles' Flavor in Your Ear on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and RadioInfluence.com. 